All right, friends, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. As excited as I am to finally preach God's word to you again this morning, uh, I do want you to know how uh, grateful I am to God for the other pastors here at Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, I am I'm so incredibly grateful for, for Jason and Sean and Drew and Nathan and their incredible skill and, and faithfulness in preaching God's word week in and week out and for how they covered for me for the last month and a half. They, they are faithful pastor shepherds, aren't they? Uh, and they are a gift to us. Yes, let's thank God for our pastors. Friends, today we're entering into a series on, on the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Uh, and we're going to begin, we're going to focus our time this morning on verses 1 to 2, but I'd like to read all the way down to verse 21 as we begin. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word. One of my all-time favorite movies is the rather old movie, The Great Escape. It is the story of the greatest prison camp escape ever done during World War II. The the German authorities thought that it was smart to put all of the high-ranking officers who were prisoners into one very high security camp that they assumed was impossible to escape from. 
But little did they know that immediately upon being put into this prison camp, all of the officers began immediately to plan their escape. Through an incredibly elaborate scheme, these these prisoners dug multiple tunnels under the walls of the prison camp. They, They forged countless documents. They created civilian clothes of many kinds, all while under the watchful eye of their enemy. Their plan was actually to have dozens and dozens of officers escape. But in order to do this, one of the prisoners who was named William Ash and who was played by Steve McQueen, and at the end he rides that great motorcycle, he was willing to to try to escape multiple times in order to gain information of the outside and then be willingly recaptured and then be put back into the cooler solitary confinement for an extended period of time where he occupied himself with his baseball glove and ball, bouncing it against the wall until he he was released so that he could give the information to his comrades to help their escape. But it becomes a bit of a comical part of the movie. He's kind of like Ginger in Chicken Run, if you've seen that movie. Both he and Ginger escape multiple times only to be imprisoned again and again. You begin to feel bad for them. It's it's kind of like the old man in the hunchback of Notre Dame who is, who is free from prison in one moment and runs around, I'm free, I'm free, only to stumble and fall into another prison cage or the stockade. You begin to feel bad for them. Like they'll never experience true freedom. Like they're always going to know only bondage. And friends, some people might feel similarly about the next section of Exodus. Last week, with Nathan's outstanding sermon from Exodus chapter 19, we we entered into this this next section of this book. Chapters 1 to 18 were all about God bringing deliverance and redemption to his people, freeing them from slavery in Egypt and miraculously providing for them in the wilderness. Those chapters 1 to 18 were all about freedom and deliverance and redemption. But now... As we come to Mount Sinai, and as we see in verse 18 of our text, the the flashes of lightning, the smoke, and the the shaking, and we we see the people of Israel, it says, fearful and and trembling and, and standing far off from the mountain. And as we begin to study the law of God, specifically the, the Ten Commandments, you might begin to wonder whether the people of Israel are truly free or not. This doesn't feel like a great situation. It's almost like they've escaped from one cruel oppressor only to stumble their way into another cage, into more bondage from another, right? And friends, when I say that, it's not just because of what we see in this text. It's, It's also because of how aware I am of how critical we can all be of authority of every kind. Right? We, we are libertarians in our hearts. We love freedom. We hate authority here in America, regardless of your political perspective. We all claim to, to love freedom and hate oppression. To, to not be completely free, to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it, feels like the worst kind of evil. And so, when we begin to read about God's law, specifically the Ten Commandments, we can become very uncomfortable very quickly. We can begin to think that that while this whole Christian thing claims to really be about freedom, in reality, you're just stumbling your way into another cage where more bondage is to be found. Even as Christians, we, we don't like to be told what to do. 
That doesn't feel like freedom to us. And so the, the Ten Commandments can make us feel very, very uncomfortable. But Redeemer family, I am so excited to study this second half of Exodus together. Because what we learn here is that, is that true freedom is not the absence of authority in our lives. True, true freedom is not just being able to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. No, true freedom is the absence of evil bondage and being given the ability to belong to and to joyfully follow a good and loving king. To obey him with our lives. Obedience before a good king is not bondage, it is freedom. And we will all be the happiest people around. We will be living the fullest lives around when we see this and pursue this together. The main idea for our sermon this morning is this. God has brought us fully out of slavery so that we might fully belong to him. God has brought us fully out of slavery so that we might fully belong to him. And, and for our structure, we're just going to break that main idea into two parts. Point number one, we were brought fully out of slavery. And point number two, we now fully belong to him. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, we were brought fully out of slavery. As is very clear, Exodus chapter 20 is all about the Ten Commandments. And we're going to spend the next ten weeks studying each of these commandments one at a time. But again, I do wonder how you feel about that. How do you feel about studying the law as a Christian? After all, isn't the Christian life supposed to be all about grace and, and not about the law? Didn't Jesus come to, to free us from the law and to, to give grace? Weren't the Pharisees in Jesus' day all about the law and Jesus called them the bad guys? Church, when, when you hear that we're going to study the Ten Commandments for, for almost three months, does your legalism radar start beeping more loudly? Does it seem like graceless, a graceless thing to do? Does it seem opposite to the gospel that we celebrate? Does it feel like, like more bondage? Pharaoh shouted, make me more bricks. But Yahweh is saying, be holy like I am holy and obey me. Different, different rulers, but the same heavy burden to bear. Church, this is why the prologue or the introduction to the Ten Commandments, which we find in verses 1 to 2, is so important. Listen, if we jump over verses 1 to 2 and jump directly to the first commandment, which can be found in verse 3, then it will indeed feel like we are jumping from one oppressor to the next. Different Pharaoh, but same burden. But... But if we rightly study and observe verses 1 to 2, well, then our understanding of these things will be very different. Because church, look at what it says, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What God says here is so important for us because what God says here highlights grace over law. What, what God says here puts the, the focus of these Ten Commandments not, not first on our ability or our inability to obey them, but rather on what God has already done for us. Right? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Past tense. It's already been done. Listen, the order of these things matters greatly. 
Consider this with me. Please note how we do not read about the Ten Commandments way back in Exodus chapter 3. Right? When Moses meets Yahweh in the burning bush, what God says to him there is not, okay, Moses, here are the Ten Commandments that I want you to share with the nation of Israel. And Moses, if and only if they obey these Ten Commandments, will I come and deliver you from Pharaoh. No. No, in chapters 2 and 3, God simply says, I've heard your groaning. I've seen your suffering. I've seen your pain. And I will joyfully deliver you. Why? Because of my grace and my love. But it is God who does the saving. And then, and, and only then, does he say, here are the Ten Commandments. Here are the instructions on how to live for my glory. Church, do you see how important this is? If the Ten Commandments came first, then our faith as Christians would be mere religion. It would be religiosity. It would be all about how we can earn our ways back to God. But it's not that, because none of us can earn our way back to God through our obedience. No, Christianity is the only religion in this world which instead of saying, here, is the rules that you, here are the rules that can get you to God, it's the only religion. It's different from Catholicism. It's different from Mormonism. It's the only religion that says, here is how God has come down to you. Here's the great things that he has done. And now here's the opportunity to live for him. Just the order matters. Have you ever heard a pastor talk about the, the difference between the imperatives and the indicatives in our Bibles? So important. An imperative, as you probably know, is a command. Exodus 20 is filled with imperatives. It's filled with commands, as is the rest of our Bibles, both in the Old and in the New Testament. But listen, the imperatives, the commands of Scripture never come before the indicatives of Scripture. The order of Scripture is never do these things and then you will be saved. Now, the indicatives always come first. What's an indicative? An indicative is a statement of fact. So here in Exodus chapter 20, the indicative comes first in verses 1 to 2, and, and then and only then the imperatives follow. And friends, it's the same throughout our Bibles. Even in the, in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What is that? That's an indicative. It's a statement of remember who Jesus is and what he's done for you, and then and only then does he say, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, idolatry, covetousness, and all these other things. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter begins in chapter 1 by saying, Christian, you have been given everything that you need for life and godliness because of Jesus. The gospel has broken open your world in a good way. That's the indicative. And then and only then does he say, make every effort to live faithful Christian lives. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that it is by grace that we have been saved. That's an indicative. That's a statement of fact. In fact, Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, they're really just indicative after indicative after indicative. And it's really not until chapters 4 to 6 that Paul turns the corner and says, because of everything that's been done for you, now here's how you should live as Christians. Friends, this is so important. It's so important for your joy. It is so important for your, your happiness as Christian men and women. 
Nathan shared with us last week how there is a lot of kingly, royal language in this part of Exodus. That's because Yahweh wants to be seen as our great warrior king. He wants us to obey him, but he does not want us to obey him in order to establish the grounds for our relationship with him. No, he wants us to obey him as a result, as a consequence, as an outworking of the relationship that he has already given. Verses 1 to 2 of our text, before the Ten Commandments, church, they really are the gospel. God comes to us and says, I have saved you. It's my grace. It's my mercy. I've done, Christian, what you could not do. You didn't deserve it. You were not more godly. You were not more holy. You were not more obedient than the other nations. You deserve death just like Pharaoh deserved death. But I've come to you, and I've I've given you grace, and I've forgiven you, and I've redeemed you, and I, I now invite you to live for me. No, I actually go so far as to command you to live for me because it's the only right response to the grace that has already been given. But this relationship, this, this covenant with God, it doesn't start with our performance or our obedience. It is not even really dependent on our obedience. God's love for you, Christian, does not precariously hang on whether you can honor your father and mother perfectly or not covet your neighbor's possessions. No, your, your joy and your hope rests entirely. It begins and it ends with the grace of God at work in your life. And he uses all those things, but the foundation is his grace. And guess what, church? That's really good news, isn't it? It is such good news. Think about who is speaking here, right? Verses one and two, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Think about what all that that represents from, from, from Exodus chapter three onward. This is the man of war, and he's fought for us. He's done great things for us. He is is the God of the 10 plagues. He's the God of the Red Sea. He's the God of great power and justice and also the God of great love and mercy. And so he's already saved us. Pharaoh and his horses and riders, they're already drowned in the sea. We're not still fighting those things. We've, We've been brought out. Christian, your salvation is an indicative, not an imperative. It's not on your shoulders to save yourself. And that matters for you today. It matters for you on Monday morning and later this week as well because being godly is hard. Obeying God is difficult because of our sinful and rebellious hearts. We we have a dark past that haunts us and it often feels bleak when we look to the future. Our, Our weaknesses are real. There are so many failures to consider. There are reminders of our past slavery to sin all around us. There's much weakness in our lives. Even right now, like I'm sure you have evidence from this past week of ways that you have failed. But listen, what God says in verse 2 to Israel is what he says to you this morning as well. Christian, if your faith is in Jesus Christ and his work on that cross and his power over the grave, if your faith is in King Jesus and if you have received the free gift of forgiveness from him, then you have been brought out of the house of slavery. Your past does not define you. The weight of your sin is no longer yours to bear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel is so freeing. It's so enabling to live the life that God has called us to live. Many of you know that I had spinal surgery over a month ago. 
and that they put me in this horrible collar. It was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever experienced. It was tight, it was hot, it was, it was itchy, it, just, it was choking me, it felt like. It just, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't find rest. It was a, a horrible four weeks. A lot of you looked at me today and said, that went fast. I said, for you it went fast. <laughs> it's a long time for me. But this past Wednesday, we went in for our post-op appointment, and we were waiting in the room, and the door opened, and the doctor walked in, and she said, you can take that off now. It's like, right, right now I can take it off? She's like, yeah, take it off. So I ripped that thing off. She's like, your scans look good. You, you are good to go. I almost ran out of that office. I, I skipped through the lobby, which is not a very attractive thing for me to do, but I, I literally went up to strangers like, look, I have a neck. It doesn't have a collar on it. I went home, I probably shouted 50 times to my kids, I'm free, I'm free. They're like, we know, Dad, we know, you're free, good, congratulations. I didn't have the bondage anymore. I didn't have the restriction anymore. Church, in and through the gospel, we have that and so much more. We can't help but be joyful even in our obedience, right? Because because we remember the collar of, of sin and shame. We remember how it was choking us out. We remember the discomfort of it. We remember how we could find no rest in ourselves or in this world. But then in and through Jesus, he walks into the room and says, you can take that off now. I've solved that problem. By my grace through the gospel, I brought you out of the house of slavery, out of the house of Egypt. Go and be free. Church, we must keep the Ten Commandments in their rightful context. This prologue is so important. The the commandments do not come before Israel's deliverance. They come afterwards. And therefore, you and I as Christian men and women today can spend three whole months studying these commands in detail without losing our freedom or our joy in Christ one bit. We can study them. We can lean into them. We can pursue them because of what he's already done for us and how we already fully belong to him. Amen? That brings us to our second point. Point number two, we now fully belong to him. So friends, as we consider, as we begin our study of this this second section of of Exodus, which is chapters 19 to, to 24, which we are entitling the Lord Covenant Maker, as we begin this, it's important that we acknowledge really how how most people think about the book of Exodus, or rather, how most people think about the first half of Exodus. The the stories that we've covered thus far in our study of this book are are pretty familiar to most people. I would say even those outside of the church, right? Baby Moses being put in the basket on the Nile. Most people have heard that before. The the plagues and the, the parting of the Red Sea and even bread being sent from heaven. All of those things are fairly familiar when they think about the book of Exodus and and their familiarity with it pretty much ends right around this part of Exodus, chapters 19, 20, maybe 21. I think it would be a complete surprise for most people to realize that the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, less than 25% of this book. But there's a reason for that. We're so familiar with those stories because we love the idea of deliverance. We love being broken out of slavery, and we should. It's right that we celebrate those things. They are indeed glorious. But then most of us kind of assume that once we get out of slavery, once we are given freedom, That's the end of the story, that the book of Exodus will just close. 
But church, that is not what the book of Exodus is entirely about. Yes, we have been fully brought out of slavery in Egypt, but we have not been brought out in order to wander about in our life, in our own strength. No, we have been brought out in order to belong. In fact, what we see here is that we have been brought out from what is one form of slavery, a bad kind of slavery, into what really can be described according to Paul in Romans chapter 6, as another kind of slavery, which is a good kind of slavery before God. We were brought out to belong. And church, chapters 19 to 40 are as important for our lives as the first 18 chapters. It would be wrong for us to, to emphasize the first without carefully studying and prioritizing the second. A happy life, again, is not found in the simple absence of bondage. No, a happy life, according to God's word, is found when we are brought out from being under a tyrant called sin and death and then placed under the covenant lordship of Jesus Christ. But listen, we are under his lordship, his authority. That's what chapters 19 to 24 are are most specifically about. We're not free agents. He didn't save us to go out and, and find another kingdom to belong to. If you have been saved from the bad pharaohs in your life, then you have been saved into the sovereign and loving reign and dominion of this God who is called Yahweh. And this is a glorious thing. Last week we looked at Mount Sinai. It's very clear what God was doing there. He brought them to this place and he says to them, you You know how I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, let me make you into a kingdom of priests, into a holy nation. He says, I want to be your king. I did not deliver you so that you could just be king over your own life. I saved you in order so that you would belong to me. It's a very personable thing. We we can see it even more in verse 1 when it says that, that I am the Lord your God. Do you see that? That word, your, in the original is in the second person singular, which you might think it would be plural because he's speaking to the whole nation, but he's not. He's not speaking corporately to the whole nation of Israel. He's speaking to each and every one of his people. He wants us today to know that he's our God, that we belong to him personally. And then we see it even more at the end of verse two when he says that he's brought us out of the house of slavery. That word house is a significant thing. A house, as you know, is a place of belonging. A home is a place of identity. Our homes and houses are, in a way, a part of who we are. And God says, I brought you out of the house of slavery. I brought you out of the bad place that you once belonged. And he says, I am speaking these words to you now in order to create a new house, a new place of belonging, a new kingdom. And he even goes so far as to say, within that kingdom as we will see in in chapters 25 to 40, I will instruct you on how to build the tabernacle, which he will describe as his house. Why? Because he wants to dwell with us. And he wants us to have a place of belonging with him. Do you see what he's saying? Christian, he's saying, I brought you out of the bad and I'm placing you into the good. Does this good house have rules? Yeah, it does. Does this house have direction for your life and how you live? Yes, but they're not arbitrary rules. They're part of my good design for you and for how you can even more fully belong to me. 
Church, this is what God's doing. He is establishing himself as the authority. He wants us to belong to him fully. But maybe it's still uncomfortable for you, right? Commands are not a happy thing in our culture. Maybe it still feels like more bondage. But before you go too far down that road, before we resist the idea of God's law, friends, let's, let's consider together three biblical reasons why the Ten Commandments are still very good and very important for our lives. Why they should still have authority over our lives. Three things. The Ten Commandments are for our good, first of all, because they bring us very near to God. Yes, he's already saved you and brought you out of the house of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, but guess what? Now he wants to share himself even more with you. What we see in these Ten Commandments, they're not arbitrary rules, but rather they are the very heart and character and goodness of God being put on display and being given to us to enjoy. We're going to see this each and every week that we're in this this chapter, but the first commandment in verse 3 is that we should have no other gods before him. Listen, is that proud of Yahweh? Is he selfish? Is he, does he have a self-identity complex? No, no. We've just studied the ten plagues in Egypt and how Yahweh has proved himself as, as far greater than all the other gods in this world. He's proven himself to be the only true God, and so it's right And it's good and it's loving that he says, don't pay any attention to those false gods anymore. Have no other gods before me because I'm the one who can do all that you need to be done in your life. The fourth commandment, the Sabbath, is it's about resting in him. Why? Is God just trying to create another rule and push his weight around? No, he gives us rules that bring us closer to who he is and to his ultimate design for our lives. He is the God of rest. He's the God of peace. He's the God of hope. He's not a frantic God. He's not running around carelessly. And so we will delight in him more and we will know him more fully and we will be happier when we choose through the fourth commandment to rest in him like he designed. The sixth commandment is that we shouldn't murder. Kind of important. That reminds us that that all of life is found in this God. He is the giver of life. There's no other source of life apart from him. And all of humanity is made in his image. And we're going to know him more when we honor the lives of those around us. We're going to know his unity and his peace more fully when we respect everyone made in his image. The seventh and the eighth and the ninth and the tenth commandments, they're all about purity and contentment and truth. Why? Because God is a God of purity and contentment and truth, and he knows that we will be happiest when we live closest to who he is and to his design for our lives. Listen, this is so exciting to me. The the ten commandments are for your good. They're not bondage. They, they, will, they will envision you uh, to live a far greater life than you would ever be able to live apart from this direction from God. And friends, this means that they still have authority and weight and value for your life today. This is not just an Old Testament text that we can set aside. No, it has claim to who we are today. And it's good. It's right. And I pray that we lean into it as we study this, this text together. I think about it like adoption, 
We love adoption here at Redeemer Fellowship. We celebrate the many ways God's leading us to, to grow in the pursuit of adoption. But, but can you imagine if a family said, hey, we want to adopt a child and, and, and deliver them from their, their homelessness and bring them into our lives. But then once they did, they said, actually, you're going to stay out in the shed. You're going to be separate from us in these ways. You're still, you're still brought out of your homelessness, but, but you're going to live in this place. And you're not going to really going to experience the fullness of who we are and our joy and our love and our affection. That, that'd be so wrong. When we adopt, we bring in, we say, we're going to share our very selves with you. You're going to become a part of who we are, even when it is so costly. That is what God is doing for us. He's saying, I've delivered you. You're no longer homeless, you have a home, and, and here's how you can enjoy who I am more fully. Follow me in these things. The one in whom is all delight and all joy and all happiness. He gives us these commands not to steal our joy, but to fuel it. It's for our good. The Ten Commandments are for our good, second of all, because they help us to live fruitful lives. Church, remember with me who is speaking to us here. Verse 2, I am the Lord. That word Lord is God's covenant name, which we learned in Exodus chapter 3 is the I am. I am that I am. He is the self-existent one. God's word says he stands alone. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has nothing to sustain him. He exists perfectly within himself. Everything in this world flows from him. And so, as the great I am, as the self-existent one, he truly is the foundation for all of reality. He determines what is right and wrong. He says what is true. Is he careless or ignorant of your feelings? No, he, he cares for your feelings. But Christian, your feelings aren't the authority in life. The great I am has authority and he knows what is best. He is, in a sense, true north. He is a compass for a happy life in this world. And what we will begin to see as we study these Ten Commandments together and the rest of the law as well is that God has given these commandments in order to help us to live, in many ways, our best lives now. There's much grace in these commandments. There's much wisdom in these commandments. There's, there's much social order and relational joy when we follow these commandments. Christian, I promise you, God's word promises you, you will be happier if you think more about what obedience before God should look like in your life. These commandments are a gift to us because they help order our lives in the best way possible. And then finally, the Ten Commandments are for our good because they push us towards the gospel. One simple reading through this list of Ten Commandments and every one of us will quickly realize that we have fallen short of God's glorious standard. In fact, in one form or another, we have all broken every single one of these commandments and we are therefore fully worthy of God's wrath and judgment. That might feel like a bad thing, but, but guess what? God's word actually says that he gave these commandments, he gave his law in order to highlight this very thing. 
He gave it as, as a mirror into our lives so that we might look and see, oh, my life is not perfect. My life is not okay. Oh, my life is not right with God. There is a problem, and that is not to cast us into despair and condemnation, but so that we would look in the mirror, see it rightly for what it is, and then run to Jesus who says, I'm ready to forgive you of the many ways that you have failed in these things. I'm ready to wash you clean and to remove the garments of shame and sin which you've worn for so long, and I'm ready to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. But friends, we'd never want those clothes if we didn't see our need for them. And he's so good and gracious and kind to say, here is my standard. I am a holy, holy, holy God. And here's 10 ways where you see my holiness. And I demand that you adhere to them, but you're going to fail. And when you do, I'm going to remind you that I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt in the first place, and I'm giving you grace day by day to keep living for me and to keep celebrating my goodness and my grace and my character in your life, and it will be for your joy and for the church's good and for the glory of my name. Redeemer family, we're beginning a, a wonderful journey. Let us lean in. Let's pray through this and ask God for grace to, to trust him enough to ask hard questions about ourselves, to say, where have I not followed him? Where have I not prioritized obedience like I should? And may he give grace in all these ways. Amen? Stand with me as I pray.